Hello and welcome to I Must Break, this podcast. This is the fan podcast celebrating the cinematic career of action icon Dolph Lundgren. Today we're going back to 1990 and taking a look at the action sci-fi classic film I Come in Peace, also known as Dark Angel, depending on the territory in which you saw the film. In this movie, Lundgren portrays Houston detective Jack Kane, a maverick, loose cannon cop who's on the trail of a new kind of drug dealer, one from outer space. It's a wild film and a prime example of just how glorious action movies were in the 1990s. I'm your host, Sean Malloy, and with me once again to discuss this film is my good buddy and fellow Dolph fanatic, Chris Prentice. Chris, how's it going, man? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing tonight? <laughs> I'm doing pretty good. Hey, thank you so much again for joining me. Um, I've been looking forward to discussing this one. This is a cult classic that uh, was not not that popular upon its initial release but over the years it has just been growing as far as uh as far as fans and as far as appreciation and correct me if i'm wrong but is this your favorite uh your favorite film out of Dolph Lundgren's entire filmography or it's up there am i right yeah it, i mean tough call to say it's my absolute favorite i mean i would say it's you know i kind of have maybe a a ring of 3 uh, with the Punisher, Universal Soldier, and this one, I Come in Peace. I mean, I think that's that trio right there, you got a little bit of everything in terms of what Lundgren can excel at. And uh, and like you mentioned, this is a movie that's only been getting better to me as the years go on. I mean, I, I didn't see it for the first time until a few years after it had been released, uh, you know, as a rental, as I think most people did, because it kind of came and went in theaters. Um, but, you know, so I saw it, you know, probably sometime around 93, and, I mean, instantly, I just thought this was just a, a phenomenal movie, uh, just an incredible mix of action and comedy and dialogue, it's, it's very snappy, you know, the banter, is, you know, I can't really say the dialogue is usually the strong suit in a lot of Dolph's movies, I mean, there certainly have been other ones that have strong scripts, uh, like Men of War, but uh, this one is right up there, just just so well done. Well, and it's it's interesting you said that your favorite um, films of his were you know Universal Soldier, The Punisher, and this one. Um, you know that that's interesting to me because yeah, I would definitely put those up there as far as my favorite films of his. Um, but those particular films, you could say those were all released and you know excuse me, they were produced and released around Lundgren's golden era, if you will, you know, his era where he was just getting on this on the scene, and, you know, his films were, you know, still in theaters at that moment. It was after Universal Soldier where he really started hitting the, hitting the direct-to-video market. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, this, I, you know, he kind of had a very small window of starring roles in, in theatrical films, kind of from, you know, Masters of the Universe in 87, 
through, like you said, with Universal Soldier in 92. You know, had a, a brief appearance back in theaters with Johnny Mnemonic. Um, but, you know, really he just kind of had five years there where he was sort of a, a, a theatrical headliner. Um, and, you know, this one was kind of right in the middle. And it just, just sort of came and went. It didn't really capture the, uh, the imagination of people back in 1990. Um, but, you know, thankfully, for thanks to home video, I think it's definitely had a life of its own. And uh, it's, you know, I think whenever you hear about it playing at, at different festivals, I think it goes over really well. And, you know, thankfully now it's gotten a, a pretty good Blu-ray release uh, from um, Screen Factory. And so, you know, you, you really can't go wrong with this one. It's I, just watching it again to prepare for this podcast. Still just a, a wild 90 minutes and just uh, lots of fun from beginning to end. You know, it really is. And like I said earlier, it really is a prime example of, of 90s, you know, what, what made 90s action cinema, um, you know, so classic and, and so unique for the time. Because it has everything. It has it has the gratuitous violence. It has the you know unnecessary nudity. It has the the snappy witty banter between you know your two heroes. I mean it has. I mean it, it, by today's standards, sure it's a little a little cheesy, a little cliche. But back in the '90s, I mean it has every one of these every one of these cliches, and it just plays it off so wonderfully. Yeah, it has all of that as well as Michael J. Pollard as Boner. Yeah, exactly. There you go. There you go right there. I mean, what else do you need? Great character actor, Michael Pollard, yeah, um, who just is in in, in the film for not even five minutes. Um, Oddly enough, actually also in the scene with the unnecessary nudity as well. But, um, yeah, yeah, he's fantastic in that scene. Um, I'm here. If you're going to have the unnecessary nudity, you better also have the character of Boner. Yeah, no, no, he, exactly. And he, he's hilarious. I mean, he's he's pretty much playing the exact character that he's played in every other film that you saw him in, circa 1988 to 1994. You know? Oh yeah, I mean, he, he I I loved always seeing him show up in you know Tango and Cash and Next of Kin, and you know I mean I think he kind of started out as a pretty credible actor in uh, Bonnie and Clyde, but uh, you know I think he. You know, eventually, in the, during that uh, late '80s, early '90s period, I mean, he would show up and stuff all the time, and I, I always, always got a kick out of him. No, yeah, I mean, he's he's excellent in the role. I mean, there's there's so many actors that are in this film that you know went on to do other things in later years. I mean, you notice them in this film, and you're like, oh, wait a minute, I've seen him, I recognize him from you know this particular television show or this movie. Um, but they play so that you know they play so well in the film. Uh, before we before we fully get into this, I think there's a couple things I want to establish first of all. Um, for all intents and purposes, for this for this particular episode, I'm going to be referring to the film as I Come in Peace for a couple of reasons. Number one, that is the title of the film uh, when it came over here in the states when it was released here in the states. That is the title that it was given. Um, I'm also going to refer to that to it, it with that particular title. Mainly because I always liked that title more <laughs> uh, than Dark Angel. And what's interesting is since it's finally gotten the proper uh, Blu-ray release here in the States, uh, they went back to the title of Dark Angel. And I think everywhere else, that's what it was That's what it was titled. That's what it was referred to. Um, I Come in Peace, I feel, is just so much more... It's much more of an original title. Um, it makes sense in the context of the film. Uh yeah, I, I never really liked the title Dark Angel, though. <laughs> no, I, I agree totally. I know people overseas, 
I think they often say, oh, I Come in Peace, that's an absurd title, because, you know, they probably grew up with it as Dark Angel, so it's just the reverse. It's, you know, I Come in Peace is how I first watched it, that's how I saw it, that's how I've been watching it, and so, yeah, that's what I prefer. I think it's just a much cooler title, it stands out. You know, Dark Angel, you know, there, I think there were previous movies that had that title, then there was a... The, uh, the uh, Jessica Alba TV series that had that title. So it's just kind of generic. It's been there, done that. I just think I come in peace. You know, whenever whenever I'm, I'm talking to people who, you know, maybe aren't quite as into these movies uh, as you or I, uh, I don't know why they wouldn't be, but there are people like that. And uh, whenever I kind of maybe mention this one, as soon as you say the title, it's like their head kind of was like, whoa, what is that? So I think yeah. it just kind of jump. it just jumps at you a lot better. Exactly. It jumps at you, and it makes sense. I mean, if you look at the context of the film, it makes sense. You know, you have your your lead antagonist, your lead bad guy, is this intergalactic alien drug dealer, okay? And the only words he speaks are, I come in peace, which I was going to get to, <laughs> your, your theories on that. But those are the only words that he speaks, and you have Dolph Lundgren's classic, you know, line that's now gone down as being such a classic line that he says to the alien right before he blows him away, he says, you go in pieces, asshole. So it always made sense to me that, the, that you know, it would be called I Come in Peace. Um, regarding Dark Angel, I never really understood that title because when you think about the title Dark Angel, you would think, okay, if it had a biblical connotation, if the film was, you know, like a biblical thriller in some kind of way, I could see it go that way. Or if your if your lead hero is you know um, is doing immoral immoral deeds for the greater good, if you will, then I can see I could see the title Dark Angel, where it's like an avenging angel figure. But there is none of that with this film. So the title Dark Angel was always such an anomaly to me. Yeah, I mean Dark Angel to me, it just has this the ring of a generic horror movie. Um, there's really nothing. You know, if you just start rattling off titles and you say uh, Dark Angel, First Power, uh, any number of those kind of, you know, horror films from that era, it doesn't really stand out. But I just, you know, I come in peace. I mean, come on. I mean, there's no there's no other movie that really has a title quite like that, uh, you know, at least that, that I can think of off the top of my head. So, yeah, I mean, and again, it, it's all about when you see things first. And you know that's again how I first watched it and how it was released in in America. So if, you know, of course, it's another title isn't going to seem quite as strong. Sim same as the reverse. I'm sure if you're overseas and it was you, in theaters as Dark Angel and it was on in video stores as Dark Angel, you know, you probably hear I come in peace. That sounds stupid. And it's just it's just kind of perspective of, of where where you grew up and, and where you first watched it. No, I yeah, I completely agree. And I guess apparently the original title, when the film was still in its early, early stages, like when it was still being written um, and still being shopped around Hollywood, um, the initial title was Lethal Contact. I would take that over over Dark Angel, you know, any day because I mean, let's face it, the film is essentially the best way I can describe the film is it's essentially Lethal Weapon meets Predator. So Lethal Contact, I feel, hits upon both of those both of those films and both of those genres perfectly. So it went with Lethal Contact. I would I would argue that that would be a uh, much more memorable title than Dark Angel would be any day. Yeah, that's a little stronger. Um, you know, I, I think the uh, 
I believe the tagline on on at least one of the posters was, you know, it's it's not the it, it's not the the closest. What is it? It's not the close encounter. It's the it's the last or something to that degree. And so it kind of plays off it being a, a mixture of lethal weapon and close encounters. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, so yeah, I mean, lethal contact that would have been fine. I think the problem there is, I mean, that sounds like every single Jeff Wincott, Lorenzo Lamas. Dawn the Dragon Wilson movie that was released at, at that time, um, you know, Lethal Contact kind of just makes me think of, of something they would have done. Um, but yeah, I like that better than Dark Angel, but both to me pale compared to I Come in Peace. Oh yeah, well and you mentioned the tagline, I distinctly remember because I had the old VHS copy of this particular tape um, back, back in 93, 94 or so around that time, and I remember the tagline on the VHS box was, good cop, Bad alien, big trouble. That that sells it perfectly, yes. in, my, in my opinion. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I mean that that's telling you everything you need to know, um, right there. Yeah, that's uh, for, I I can picture that VHS box right now with that tagline. But I, I've seen the other one about the uh, it's not a close encounter, it's the last. Uh, I've seen that on some of the other posters that have have you know been available for sale um, uh, with with some of the maybe the variant artwork for the movie um so i i i I like both taglines i think they're they're both pretty good and both tell you exactly what you're getting out of the movie oh yeah exactly so um yeah and also before we you know fully dive into this i'm curious what was your what was your experience with the film i mean you you said you remember you saw it a few years after it had initially had its theatrical run but i'm assuming was this another rental that you rented because you were a fan of Dolph Lundgren at the time, and so you rented it from your local blockbuster, I'm assuming? Yeah, this was one that, um, you know, I, I mean, I think kind of, you know, I had seen Masters of the Universe, I had seen, obviously, Rocky IV, seen Red Scorpion, and, you know, I thought, you know, Lundgren was, you know, perfectly fine, not, not, no, no real problems with him, and, you know, but really the Punisher was sort of the one that I rented where I was like, whoa, okay, this, this is the guy... You know, this this is the guy who's to me ahead of Seagal, ahead of Van Dam. Um, you know, this is to me the, the the top guy right now. And you know, later on, saw Showdown in Little Tokyo on video, loved that one. Um, a little bit later on from that, saw Universal Soldier, loved that. I mean, it was just getting better and better. And so you know, it was maybe a, you know a few months after seeing Universal Soldier that I ended up renting I Come in Peace. And to me, it was like just the hits just keep on coming. I mean, it was just, I, I was upset with myself that I hadn't watched it previous because, you know, I think it had been out maybe about three years by the time I saw it. So uh, that, that's pretty much my experience was, was renting it, you know, a good three years after it was released and, you know, immediately just had it propelled right to the top of, of my favorites for this guy. Yeah, no, I saw it, um, I, I was able to pick it up, you know, we were, when last time you and I spoke, we were talking about Red Scorpion and how that was able to, that was able to get to the public masses by way of, you know, in the bargain bins as a cheap VHS, you know, purchase. Um, oddly enough, that's actually how I was able to first get this one. If you remember the old uh, VHS label, uh, Media Home Entertainment, and they, one of their big things is they had the uh, Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. That was one of their big franchises that they that they had sold. Um, 
But yeah, they one of one of the other titles in their catalog was was I Come in Peace. So I was able to. I remember I picked this tape up, you know, out of a, a relative um, bargain bin at the time, and uh, brought it home and. You know, like I said, I was a big fan of Dolph, thanks to thanks to Masters of the Universe, thanks to Rock Four, thanks to Punisher, and so um, here was another Dolph Lundgren title that had been out for you know a few years at this point, but I was able to get it relatively cheaply thanks to Media Home Entertainment, and immediately loved it. I will admit I did see this at quite a young age, and so it was not one of my favorites, mainly because the scenes with Talek, Mateus Hughes, his alien character Talek. The scenes where he was, you know, there and there are multiple scenes where he would, you know, come in and, you know, <laughs> extract the endorphins from unsuspecting innocent people. As a kid, those scenes freaked me out, and so it was, <laughs> I, yeah, it was I, not I, one of my I, favorites. I can see that, though. You know, if when you look back at the movie now, I think one of the really cool aspects to those scenes is that they, as those scenes go on, you know, there's about maybe three or four of those. He doesn't do. You don't see the whole routine. It's like you see a little bit, you know, at first. Then you see a little more of what he's doing to everybody, and it's it's each one you see more and more of what he's doing to the different humans that he's you know killing essentially. Um, yeah. I love that. They 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 don't do it all right away. It's just there's a little bit here, there's a little bit there, and you know eventually you kind of see the whole process. But that's that's just one of the the cool things that I've noticed the, the last few times I've seen it. No, yeah, no, I completely agree. And, you know, one of the other things, it really is a shame that this did not get, uh, it did not get a whole lot more attention upon its, upon its theatrical release, you know, because, you know, we were talking in the, in the pre previous episodes regarding, you know, regarding Lundgren's, you know, previous efforts, you know, all of those films were, you know, unfortunately had all sorts of production issues that were going on, you know, while the, while the movie was being filmed or when it was in post-production. Hence, you know, how the, the films were, you know, dropped off, you know, with, in the case of The Punisher, that was, that was direct-to-video. But his other two efforts, you know, came to theaters, but they unfortunately just kind of came and went. To my knowledge, there really weren't any production issues with I Come in Peace. It just, you know, it was released, and unfortunately, for whatever reason, it just did not click upon, upon its theatrical run. I don't know why. Yeah, I mean, when you watch the uh, the the bonus feature on the the Blu-ray, you know, Craig R. Baxley, the director, you know, he speaks about how you know they had a very small budget and they were able to basically do way more. I mean, that's you don't usually hear that on these. You know, you always hear about oh, we couldn't do this, we couldn't do that. But you know, he talks about how they were able to do way more than they would have ever anticipated with the the amount of money they had. And you know, it, it sounds like the actual production went off great. And you know, he mentions how they were ahead of schedule, so they could do more things that they weren't planning to do. So at least on the production side, it seemed like everything was going great. You know, the, you know, eventually it was released, and yeah, it just came and went. Um, I think it was in September of 1990. So you know, September. Maybe not now. It seems like there's really no dumping ground anymore for movies, but certainly back in the early 90s, you know, September was was definitely a dumping ground, and, you know, a lot of movies, you know, if you weren't coming out in the summer and you weren't coming out around the holidays, it was, it was basically you weren't going to make much of an impact, and that was the, the case with this one. It just came and went, and, you know, eventually was, uh, I assume, probably a, a moderate success on video because it seems like everybody I know who's seen it that's the way they saw it 
Yeah, no. Well, and I think everything you said is is definitely apt and definitely correct, especially by today's standards. Because yeah, nowadays I, I'd still say that the dumping grounds for theatrical releases are still around September and January. Those are the two dead months for whatever reason. Um, studios will unfortunately unload their films that they don't have a heck of a lot of faith in. Well, but it seems to me if you look now, I mean, there's a lot of big movies that come out now in September and January. Um, a lot of times, especially in January, you get the movies that had maybe a brief qualifying run in New York and L.A. for, for the Oscars in, in December, um, so that they could at least be you know able to be nominated, and then they'll open wide in January. So you get some pretty big movies that go wide in January. You know, and it seems like e even in September, um, there's been some big movies the last few years. There, uh, the Equalizer with Denzel, um, then True. The Magnificent Magnificent Seven the year after. Um, so I, it seems like I, I, September isn't quite the dumping ground it used to be. It's, it's you know probably. The, the, the least uh, effective month to release a movie, but I, you don't really see it being the barren month that it certainly would have been back in 1990. True. No, no. That, that's, definitely, that's definitely correct. That's definitely fair. But regarding I Come in Peace, you know, I think there are multiple players in the film that help make it, help sell it and help, you know, make it stand the test of time. And so I wrote to a lot of these players down, um, but before we get into the actors, um, one thing that we do have to discuss is this was written by an uncredited David Kep, who went on Hollywood to do some pretty amazing things <laughs> in Hollywood. And this oh, is absolutely. a film that, unfortunately, um, you know, he's now getting the credit for it. But yeah, he was he was uncredited at the time. But yeah, David Kep um, has has this experience in 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 the business. Um, you know, with uh, he's dabbled in Jurassic Park and many of the superhero franchises and movies that have uh, come in the multiplexes, but this was an early David Kep piece. Yeah, I believe he also wrote Carlito's Way, if, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's obviously one of the, the more well-known screenwriters of uh, the last, uh, you know, 20-plus years, and uh, I mean, I think you can tell when you watch I Come in Peace that it, it is, even though there's a lot of goofy stuff and a lot of silly stuff, I mean, you can tell that it, it's written by someone who knows what they're doing and knows yeah. how to keep keep things moving, but also keep the dialogue snappy and keep the banter funny. It, it's it's not it's not the work of a hack writer at all. And, you know, a lot of times you would you would see that in these sort of sci-fi action movies, but not the case with with his script at all. No, most definitely. And the other player who I think actually should probably get the most credit and the most um, acknowledgement for this, you know, of course, you know, Dolph Lundgren is Jack Kane. He does an amazing job. We'll be getting to him. Matthias Hughes is Talek. He he owns the role as, as the evil alien. Yes. But, you know, we need to look at Craig R. Baxley because yes. Craig R. Baxley, he was an experienced stunt coordinator um, really only had around this time three films to his name, but um, if you, if I recommend anybody who loves I Come in Peace and has not seen Action Jackson and Stone Cold. I really think these are the three films that you need to take a look at because these are the most macho, guys guy, uh, badass movies. And you know, he, each one of them, I almost feel that they belong in the same universe in a in yes. a weird way. Yes, um, they. I mean, they 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 definitely do. I mean, that's. As good a trio, if you're if you're into action movies and you want to see a director who is 
basically just going balls out and having the time of his life blowing everything up that he can possibly get his hands on those three action jackson i come in peace and stone cold i mean that's that those those are three movies that pretty much define the era for me i mean oh know, easily they're not easily. they're not huge hits they, they're not as big as, you know, Terminator and Cliffhanger and some of the other ones I love from that time. But, man, you know, uh, to me, the fact that this guy directed all three of those, you know, forever, uh, that, that name will mean something to me. He also, as far as I know, you know, he was did the, uh, the a lot of the second unit work on Predator. And, again, you, you read stuff on the Internet, you don't know how true it is. But from what I've always read is that he was mainly the guy who directed that uh, opening action scene with uh, Arnold's crew tearing down, you know, basically showing how badass his crew was early in the movie. That that, that was mostly all the work behind the camera of Baxley. And, and to me, I believe it just because when you look at that scene and you, then you see what he's done since after that, it, it would make sense. And I could see where his work on Predator would have convinced Joel Silver to give him a shot with a, another movie, and Joel Silver produced Action Jackson. Uh, so it, it does make sense to me that he probably had a, a pretty good hand in a lot of the, the, the big the big action sequence at the start of Predator. Oh, no, yeah, most definitely. Um, and, you know, here was a guy, and he says this in the, in the, um, in the special feature documentary that's on the, on the Shout Factory disc, but, you know, the, the film, when he first signed on, the film had a budget of between 20 to 25 million. That, unfortunately, got slashed all the way down to 5 million. You could not tell, though. I mean, you yeah. talk about how he blows things up. He blows shit up well. I mean, I have never seen a film that, I mean, he makes this thing look, I mean, if it's only 5 million, like I said, you can't tell because he is just, there is not, I don't think there is a 10-minute stretch where something is not getting blown up. And as they point out in the in the documentary, nowadays this would be done on a green screen. This would be done CG. But this yeah. is before CG, and man, does it look cool. He, he does an amazing job. I really wish that we would see more of Craig Baxley. I know that he's still in the business, and he's still you know um, in Hollywood working. You know, uh, I'm, I'm, I don't know what his capacity is nowadays, if he's still doing stunt work or not. But I know his previous directorial efforts have really just been made-for-TV type stuff, which which is a shame, because this guy, he he is a voice in the action genre who um, I, I feel... I mean, man, can you imagine if he was with... If you did a film with Jason Statham nowadays with Craig R. Baxley, I mean, you know, I would love I, to see that. Oh, I'm there day one. I mean, I've, I know. That's, that's a no-brainer. Yeah, I mean, after, after Stone Cold... Uh, yeah, things you know, the, the type of projects he was he was doing were, were not quite as big. He did do you know a lot. I didn't really watch any of this stuff, but he did a lot of the Stephen King miniseries that would show up on ABC. He directed a lot of those. Um, mm -hmm. But maybe the one movie that he directed, you know, post Stone Cold that that I enjoyed was he did the the second Sniper film with Tom Berenger. Um, which uh, to me is fun. It's a pretty solid movie. It's it's a uh, Behringer and uh, Bokeem Woodbine together, and it's actually I think it's pretty good, pretty solid, solid effort from uh, from Baxley. Um, but yeah, ever ever since that's probably the last thing I, I hate to say it, that may be the last thing that I, I've seen that he uh, that he directed. And see, I have not seen that one. But okay, here's the million dollar question for you with Sniper Two: Is 
does Craig Baxley blow shit up in the film? It does it look cool? Oh yeah, cool? there there <laughs> are there are explosions. You know, they maybe don't quite have the same zest that they did for from Action Jackson, I Come in Peace, and Stone Cold. But yeah, there's plenty of explosions, and uh, and it, it it's it's a, a pretty for direct to video sequels. It's it's on the high end. Um, you know, I would say uh, and. and to compare it to the uh, the other films from the the sniper catalog, of which I mean it's hard to believe there are now seven. Um, I would I would put it squarely at number two. Interesting. Okay. Well, I'll definitely have to check that out. You know, but there's an interview that is online with Brian Bosworth. You know, Brian Bosworth, um, you know, <laughs> was able to parlay his football career, his NFL career, into becoming a uh, a next action star, and unfortunately. For him, that that did not uh, that did not work out as well as I imagine he had hoped or he had wished. But he talks about working on Stone Cold, and you know, I guess Craig R. Baxley was brought in, you know, pretty much at the eleventh hour, and they had to rewrite the script and they had to reshoot some stuff. And I guess, according to Brian Bosworth, Baxley came in and just said, "Hey, look, this is a guy's movie. I'm gonna blow some shit up, and we're gonna make it look cool and kill a bunch of people, and it's it's gonna be a guy's movie." And Stone Cold, that is another one um, right up here with uh, with I Come in Peace where every time I watch that one, I just enjoy it more and more. It, ma- it makes me enjoy Brian Bosworth. Which, which, no, I, you know. I agree. Well, the the, uh, the original director was uh, Bruce Malmuth, who, yeah. um, who you know later did uh, Lundgren's Pentathlon. And, and I always feel bad for him because he's kind of like, I mean, he's, he's now passed on, but... He, he's sort of the whipping boy of, you know, movies where the stars always say, oh, I was with this this real hack director. I, I mean, I know because he did Hard to Kill, and, you know, I know Seagal had, didn't, didn't really think much of him directing that film. Um, Nighthawks is one. I know Stallone didn't really think too much of, of him on that. And obviously people didn't think too much of him on Stone Cold because he, he ended up getting replaced. Um so I always feel bad for him because you know I mean just he it's just his name always gets mentioned as someone who you know the stars of these movies just didn't didn't think could could quite cut it and um, but but hey I gotta say when it comes to Stone Cold I think they made the right move because I don't oh, think Bruce I don't think Bruce Malmuth would have would have had quite an insane final twenty minutes as you get in uh, in Stone Cold. I mean, I know this is the I Come in Peace episode of this podcast, but my God, the last 20 minutes of Stone Cold, it's it's insane, mainly because, yeah, okay, I know Brian Bosworth, he does kill pretty much all the Brotherhood, but he doesn't really save much of anything. I mean, they, they basically accomplish everything they want to do. They, they kill everyone they want to kill. They uh, um, His woman is killed. Uh, Bosworth does not really save the day in that movie. It's a, it's 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 absolutely bonkers. Well, he doesn't really save the day. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, it is it is Baxley, you know, delivering a guys guy movie. And you know, you mentioned Pentathlon, and obviously that is going to be an episode, um, you know, a few movies down the line. Pentathlon is a film that, you know, man, maybe if uh, if they had fired Bruce Malmuth and brought in Baxley for that one, maybe Pentathlon would not be the bizarre hodgepodge film that it is and like you said i know that this is the i come in peace episode but man i watch pentathlon and you can tell that there was so much tampering with that film because it wants to be a karate kid sports drama it also wants to be a political thriller it also wants to be a revenge thriller it's weird 
it's there's too much too much going on they really should have just made it a straight up you know inspirational sports movie um that that really would have been the direction to go you know that yeah it, it there's just way too much that they're trying to accomplish and you know david soul's accent is is really uh it's it's not yeah. very good <laughs> yeah so yeah well i'll be hitting up i'll most likely be hitting you up for that one as we as we get oh, down there <laughs> can't wait to revisit pentathlon <laughs> so so yeah we're talking about these players who help make the film and obviously like i said Craig Baxley, I think he deserves most of the credit. But then you go to Dolph Lundgren as Jack Kane. Now, I guess when Craig Baxley, you know, had signed on for the film, he apparently assumed that that you know Dolph was going to be playing the villain in the film. And if you look at where Lundgren's career was at the time, that makes sense. I, I guess if, I, if I'm a director going into a film, I would assume that as well because you know if you look at Lundgren's prior. Uh, acting experience, prior acting roles, you know, he had pretty much played these superhuman, you know, larger than life figures, and so it would make sense, a new guy, a new director coming on to a film, um, you know, titled Icon of Peace or Lethal Contact, whatever it was titled at the time, about a, you know, a Houston detective tracking down this, this big, larger than life, unstoppable alien, it would make sense that that would go to, that would, that, that would go to Lundgren. I mean, if you think about it, Early in Arnold's career, he took on the role of the Terminator, which was a larger-than-life, unstoppable villain. However, that was not the case. Um, they actually went the exact opposite, which I think was extremely smart on everybody's part. But yeah, Lundgren portrays Jack Kane, who is this loose cannon maverick detective who you know hates listening to his superiors. He pretty much you know he plays by his own his own rules. You know he's the old <laughs> he's the yes. the uh, the standard uh, you know badass cop trope that you can imagine well i think one of the the best lines that kind of exemplifies his character is when he's you know having one of his many scenes where he's going back and forth with brian ben ben and brian ben ben basically tells him you know your problem is you know you're not a team player and and Lundgren just says well well your team sucks and to yeah. me, that that just kind of sums up exactly where he's coming from, and uh, it typifies who he is and who this character is, and uh, it's one of the one of the you know many many mo- moments that that kind of sums him up in the in the film, and uh, you know he's he's this awesome, you know. But another thing that I that I love is that he's this he's this badass cop, you know, plays by his own rules. You know, dresses how he wants to dress, but then you go you go back to his his home, and it's like the most cultured home that any badass cop has ever had. I, I love his residence in this movie. Maybe the best Lundgren residence in any of his films. Well, and I'm okay. We're so we're going ahead. A couple things right there. My favorite, uh, my favorite Dolph Lundgren moment in this film. I mean, it, it, you know, besides the ending, of course, and all that. But my favorite, where where you get to know what kind of a cop he is is in the beginning after his partner is killed he goes into the bathroom to speak to the to speak to the FBI agent and there's a there's a police officer in there going to the bathroom and here Lundgren just comes in asserts his dominance and kicks the guy out i thought that was hilarious like this lets you know that he is a badass cop who even even the other cops on the department are scared of and don't <laughs> don't don't want to get on his bad side yeah, well, and there, and there's lots of little moments like that in the movie, and you know that's a great one. 
Um, there's the one that I love later on where Brian Benben needs to use the payphone and he basically commandeers it from the woman and, you know, he basically hangs up her call and then, and then goes to her, ah, do you have change? <laughs> I mean, it just, th there are so many little moments like that in this movie. Um, and, and yeah, the one you mentioned in the bathroom is, is, is awesome. Um, another thing, another thing about that, uh, that, <laughs> that opening sequence is you know he's he's I don't think I noticed this until seeing it on Blu-ray because things are obviously a much much clearer. But he's he's wearing like this ultra cool Houston Astros T-shirt. It's it it's not even really like the Astros colors, but it's it's like a kind of a black and white shirt. Um, but it's it's a Houston Astros shirt that it, I mean it just it just looks really cool and it, it it's just uh, one of those little things that I don't think I noticed the first few times that I watched it. Um, but you know, thankfully uh, now that you have it on Blu-ray, everything is a little bit clearer and you can kind of make out all these little details that maybe you missed the. First See, time. and I didn't pick up on that, but <clears throat> I am so glad that you mentioned his house because. <clears throat> When we go back to his house, it's hitting upon... So we talked about how the film is Lethal Weapon meets the Predator. And so, yeah, they're hitting upon that, that Martin Riggs, you know, trope where, you know, he you go into his house and it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's fairly nice. You know, Martin Riggs lived in a, uh, you know, lived in a shack. Yeah, in a, in a trailer. But, yeah, we get to see that he is, he is a single guy living alone. And what's interesting... Now, I cannot take credit for this observation... Uh, this observation was made. There was another podcast out there called The Nerds of Nostalgia, and they had an episode where they did an entire retrospective on the films of Craig Baxley. But they brought up an interesting point. If you think about it, in the trio of films that, that Baxley did, Action Jackson, I Come in Peace, and Stone Cold, his heroes, these cops, all live in just these nice swank pads, man. Where they, I mean, it, it's amazing to me. I don't, That's I don't true. know what, yeah. uh, what, what kind of salary these detectives have to afford such, such nice pads. But man, they, these guys are, you know, they're badass cops living by their own rules. But they must have uh, amazing house cleaners or something because these, these pads are dope. So, no, it's true. Yeah, you, the 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 uh, Bosworth pad in, in Stone Cold is is similar. Um, also, uh, you know, Carl Weathers' place in uh, in Action Jackson. So yeah, that is that is a running motif in in these uh, these Baxley uh, action extravaganzas. Yeah. So, so yeah, like I said, going back to Lundgren as Kane. You know, he you know, you would think you know, judging by where Lundgren's career was at the at this moment in time, that he'd be playing the alien, maybe even the good alien character but no he is playing a regular guy and what's interesting too is I would say this is the first real time I and mean, if you want to count the Punisher as the first time in his career where he's playing a regular guy you could however the scenes where we got to see you know Lundgren when he was Frank Castle as a regular guy those were cut unfortunately so this is the first time where we really get to see him as just a regular you know a regular cop a regular guy you know living in an apartment and he's happens to be tracking down an alien. Um, if we go to the antagonist, if we go to the main villain, uh, Matthias Hughes, you know, and from the director's standpoint, you know, when they're putting this film in production, okay, you have you have Dolph Lundgren as your main character, okay, and you know, here Dolph Lundgren is like, what, 6'3", six, 6'4", six, six, he's a big, fit dude, and you need a villain who is going to be intimidating and imposing as all hell, who do you who do you hire? Who do you cast 
that is going to be more intimidating than Lundgren, and they found it. I mean, Matthias Hughes, granted, he only says, you know, in the entire film, he only says one line, I come in peace, but my God, he is terrifying in this role. Yeah, he, he was a, a, an awesome find. Um, you know, to me, obviously up until now in, in the movies that Dolph had done, you know, he's the big guy. He, whether it's Drago, he's the big guy, or Red Scorpion, he's the big guy who's throwing everyone around. Same as in He-Man. But, uh, you know, now I love that in no. I Come in Peace, he's not the big guy. He's kind of getting thrown around like a rag doll. You know, he's got somebody towering over him, and it's it's one of the many reasons why I, I dig this movie so much is it, it kind of subverts a lot of the stuff that we'd seen in his films previously, and, and now he's just kind of like the guy who's in awe of this challenge that he has to face. And, yeah, I don't know exactly where they found Mateus. Um, I know, obviously, he's very, very athletic, and, I mean, yeah, he was incredible in this movie. It's only the three words, but, man, I mean, his his movements and just the way he kind of carries himself in this flick, I mean, he's he is spectacular. He really is. I believe he was a German decathlete who had come over to the U.S. and was doing, um, was very active in the fitness scene and was doing some work at, you know, some of the, at the Gold's gyms that were in, you know, that were in Venice, California. And so, uh, yeah, so that that's kind of how he came over to the States and got his start. Um, and I believe he is still, I, I will be honest, I've really only seen maybe two other films with him in it since this one. But for all intents and purposes, he'll always be Talek, and I think he's probably best known for this particular role. Oh, oh no, this is, I mean, this, even though the movie was not a huge hit, I mean, this is the movie that comes to mind when you think about Matthias Hughes. Um, he was he was very good as the heavy in a in a, a really good Jeff Wincott film, uh, Mission for Justice. Um, he, he's he's a very good bad guy in that one. Uh, there's another one he did with Lorenzo Lamas that was pretty good, Bounty Tracker. Um, so I mean, he's had a handful of. I, I actually just saw him in a film uh, that came out about a month ago with uh, Mark Dacascos' uh, Ultimate Justice. Um, he's part of the ensemble on that. Not a very good movie, but I will say that it, it may be worth watching because you do get to see Matthias Hughes working at a hamburger stand wearing a big <laughs> giant hamburger hat. So if you want to see Matthias, Matthias Hughes wearing a big giant hamburger hat, uh, check out Ultimate Justice. Not much to recommend it aside from that. I, I really I, it wasn't wasn't all that hot, but I, I do love the fact that I did get to see him wearing a big giant hamburger. Hat. Well, and he's still pretty fit, and he's still pretty you know cut. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, you know I would not mess with the guy at, at all. I mean he's I don't know exactly what his age is right now. I got to imagine he's you know probably close to or over 60 I mean yeah. he's got to be kind of I would think in that same age as, as Lundgren is um, but yeah I mean I certainly would not mess with the guy at all I think he could uh, look if they were going to do a part two to I Come in Peace and they were going to somehow clone him and, and bring him back I think he, he'd be more than up to the challenge so yeah hamburger hat or not still wouldn't mess with him I know I wouldn't so 
Well, I would say if if he if they can do the sequel to I Come in Peace and have him wear the hamburger hat, then you've really got everything going going your everything's gravy after that. So well, and it's interesting you mentioned the sequel because I believe you know Mateus Hughes has pretty much been the only player from the original yeah. film who's been talking about a sequel, and I think he, I think I, I get the feeling that it's pretty much in his mind. But yeah, he, anytime he does yeah. an interview, he's always talking about, oh, it's in the works, but he's the only one I think working on it. So, yeah, he's he's the uh, the Tom Arnold of I Come in Peace too. Um, I, I that's that's how I would describe it. Uh, yeah, they're really aside from him. I'm not even sure who would have the rights to make an I Come in Peace too, because I mean, I who knows who would who would have that that job of trying to figure out the rights to who who could actually make a sequel to it um, you know i think there's it's a movie that is ripe for a sequel i think there's a lot of different angles you could do um, but yeah I, I do think it's pretty much just mateus at this point um, and and hey if he can somehow make it happen then god bless him no yeah yeah now are you familiar with i know we're kind of going all over the place here but are you familiar ah, are fine. you familiar with the comic book series because they did put out a limited edition three issue um, comic book series by this independent company that has long been out of print out of business um, uh, but yeah it's a three issue extremely independent extremely amateur but uh, are you familiar with it have you seen it well, I mean, I have it, but I only have two issues. There's three of those? Well, maybe I'm wrong, because I have two issues as well. I thought maybe, there were three. I, I, I could be wrong. I could be wrong also. But, yeah, um, I do have two of the issues, but now it's like that's my mental note as soon as we get done here as I'm going right to eBay to see if uh, that third issue is out there, because I've got some reading to do if, if so. But, uh, but, yeah, I do have... I do have the two issues. I think I stumbled upon those, you know, on eBay probably like ten years ago or so. Um, and for, you know, from what I remember, the the first issue is basically like a prequel. Um, it's all pretty much on the alien planet. It it, it doesn't even have uh, you know Jack Kane's character. Um, you don't see him until the second issue. Uh, so it's kind of interesting on that front. But yeah, I am familiar with those comics. And by God, if there's a third issue, it's mine. I can tell you that right well, now. Well, they are. <laughs> even for 1990 you know, comic book standards, these issues are extremely cheap. And <laughs> just extremely yes. amateur. Yeah. The artwork is, is, is pretty... You know, it's pretty poor, especially by the standards of, uh, of you know, Marvel and DC back then. But yeah, I recommend anybody who is a fan of I Come in Peace or Dark Angel, however you want to refer to it, um, go on eBay and see if you could find these comics. I, they're not they're not worth much because I know I got mine on eBay as well for about a buck a piece. So um, well, you know, it's funny, and 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 we're, I mean, we're kind of I God, the whole time we're kind of going off on tangents, but you know, I actually maybe a couple years ago. I bought a comic. It was made by Marvel, but it was it was basically the cyborg comic of the Van Damme movie. So it was you know Marvel's comic for cyborg. But what's really cool about it? Forget the fact that it's like this comic book for cyborg. Is like the whole book is a big ad for Canon Films. All the advertisements are basically for other canon films that were in production or were also going to be coming out pretty soon. So, it, I mean, it's really wild uh, in terms of 
of just being a really cool piece of canon memorabilia is this uh, Cyborg comic. So if anybody's listening and is into canon films, uh, track down that Cyborg comic. It, it's it's well worth whatever would be asked for it uh, on eBay. Um, but but yeah, I've the, the I come on piece comics. Uh, yeah, very crude, very rudimentary. But you know, hey, I, it's better 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 to have crude I come in piece comics than no I come in piece comics at all. No, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, um, but yeah, going back to the film, okay, so we're, we're, you know, we're in I Come in Peace now. The film officially starts, and this is one of the things that, that I've always loved about the film that I always appreciate. So we talked about how Baxley was able to make, you know, a, you know, the film was $5 million is what he had, but how he makes it look so much better. And these opening scenes, even by today's standards, I always feel these opening scenes are so well done for a variety of reasons. First of all, it's establishing your secondary villains who are the white boys, these um, uh, upscale, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know how you refer yeah. to them, but yeah, it establishes these... I mean, it's basically, it's a, it's a yuppie gang, yeah. essentially. establishes these secondary villains, yeah, they go by the name the white boys, and yeah, they're this upscale, uh, yuppie group of drug dealers. The score that is employed in the opening scenes, I always, I always loved the opening score. Um, in these opening scenes. So we get these these villains who are breaking into a police station, stealing, you know, off stealing these drugs, stealing this evidence to this score, which I always thought was great. Um, and it also we get we, we get the, the, the image of it being set during Christmas. So we get these Christmas trees and we get, you know, intertwined, excuse me, with the score, we get this Christmas music going on. And so it it really I don't know about you, but I always felt, okay, so with the score, with the villains, with the with the action that is going on, and the Christmas setting, it has this look and this sheen almost of a Joel, Joel of, excuse me, of a Joel Silver film, and I that's one of the things that I oh, always yeah. loved no, and appreciated it, about it. Yeah, I mean, to me, it, it fits it fits right in with the 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 big action movies of that time. You know, Lethal Weapon, Lethal Weapon Two. Obviously, it's cheaper than those, but. To me, I mean, it, it, it definitely feels like something that Joel Silver would have produced uh, at that time. Um, absolutely agree with you there 100%. Well, even even the font that they're using for these opening titles, even the font has yes. has the feel. So, very, you know, much, very much similar to that Lethal Weapon font. Yeah, exactly. Uh, definitely, so, definitely. Yeah, so... Well, then you bring up the music... The music, you know, that's from Jan Hammer, who, you know, did most of the music for Miami Vice. And, yeah, you're right about that, too. It, it's, it sounds great. I mean, I love the, the, the score for this film. Yeah, and unfortunately, the score gets dropped. I mean, you really only hear that score in the opening, in the opening titles. But, like I said, these opening titles, you know, I, I hate to you know, sound like a broken record and keep going back, but the score... The Christmas setting, the font that they're using on these opening titles, and just you know establishing, boom, it's bringing you right into the action where this yuppie, this yuppie gang of drug dealers is in the police station and they're you know robbing the evidence room. It it really looks much bigger than it really is. I mean, it, and if I didn't know um, any better, you would think that this was produced by Joel Silver because it does have a very similar feel to like Lethal Weapon or Last Boy Scout or any of those any of those films that were done around the early nineties. Yeah, that that's again. You know, we marvel about how the the budget, you know, allegedly five to seven million. But man, I mean, it looks it can hang right there with Action Jackson and and well, to me, I also think aside from being comparable to a lot of Joel Silver films, you know, this is a movie that 
this this era, this time period, there were so many awesome kind of lower budget sci-fi action films, and this one fits right in with They Live, with The Hidden, I mean even Terminator. Um, so that that's what I come in peace kind of means to me is that it it really fits in you know alienation which to me isn't quite as strong as those ones but again it's it's sort of of that mold and it, it really fits in and can totally hold its own with those movies and going along with those movies it is it is establishing our our hero Jack Kane who is undercover I mean and this this is I guess. Gosh, I guess even by 1990, this is a bit of a cliche, bit of an an action movie trope. He is undercover. Uh, His partner is involved in a drug bust. His partner's name is Ray Turner, by the way. And his partner is pretty much in the film just to be killed. That is really his only... He he is a walk-and-talking plot device. And he is in the film just to be killed, giving, giving Kane some motivation. Basically, Jack Kane is undercover in his car... Um, listening in on on this drug deal that is going down um, with the white boys, and as luck would have it, a robbery is underway at a convenience store right across the street. So, of course, Kane has to intervene, and he is not there to save his partner. Here's my big question with this scene. I get the fact that, you know, his partner needs to die because that establishes that establishes the need and the immediacy for, you know, for Kane to, you know, get involved in these in these proceedings, but why aren't there any other officers involved in this stakeout in this sting? I mean, well, because Jack Kane doesn't need backup. On, <laughs> you're not gonna, you're not gonna have Jack Kane looking for you know, because because if you're Jack Kane, you probably think, well, the white boys have most of the force probably bought off, um, which they actually there is a joke about that in when they go to the the boardroom of, of the white boys talking about you know, did we miss a payment? So to me, it's uh, that that's why you know, Jack Kane just doesn't need backup. Um, and unfortunately, you know, you had the uh, the unfortunate that he was listening in on this big bust uh, while there was a, a liquor store robbery in progress, and uh, you know that was the end of Ray Turner. Sadly, I think all we were missing from Ray Turner was a, a scene before the, uh, the the drug deal in which he. He talks to Kane about how he's going to retire after this bust and his plans for retirement. That's pretty much all we were missing from Ray Turner. Not only that, but a, a, a scene of him showing, opening his wallet and showing a photograph of his family, you know, yes. <laughs> at home, you know. Yes. So absolutely. Yeah. So these scenes, you know, early on, you know, they are extremely cliche. Um, we do get to see Dolph showcase his karate training and skills uh, when he goes into the goes into the convenience store to stop this robbery um, that is being conducted by these tweakers, you know, who come in. Um, he, he gets to demonstrate his karate, and as, as he discusses in the documentary, that is an actual kick. He actually literally did smack that dude in the face. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, like, whenever people would, you know, you get into these little arguments with, with you know, people who are into these movies, and they talk, ah, you know, he's not a much of a martial artist, and ah, he can't really, he can't kick. Well, I always say, well, you know, you go watch that kick at the start of I Come in Peace and then tell me that, that Lundgren can't kick and because that is one of the best-looking kicks in the world. And as you mentioned, one of the reasons it looks so great is because, yeah, he clocks the guy. There's no there's no uh, movie magic at all. He straight-up clocked the guy. Yeah, no, he clocks the guy. I mean, the, the scene looks great. And it really is a shame because even today, I mean, you know, <clears throat> Lundgren has experience. I mean, he is a... 
you know, he, he knows his shit. I mean, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, he has the training, he has the skills in the martial arts, and it really is a shame. I mean, there, there are, you know, a few films. You know, he got to display a little bit of it in this film and in The Punisher. He did another one back in uh, 2005 that uh, we really got to see a lot of his, his martial arts skills um, called uh, Direct Action. Oh, yeah. Um, but other than those films, we really don't get to see a heck of a lot of it. So I always love these scenes because... You know, he here's a guy who has the training, and you get to see get to see it on display. And then, and, and, and what a scene for it to be on display. Oh yeah, well, I think he's he's talked about in the past about when you know when he's done some of these movies with other martial arts actors, you know, like Universal Soldier with Van Damme, that he doesn't really want to do the martial arts because that's what the other guy does. So he's just going to use brute force and just his strength. So, which I think is smart. So, you know, you, that's why you see him as just kind of the big, powerful, you know, just absolute strong man in Universal Soldier. It's kind of the same tactic in uh, The Expendables with his fight scene with Jet Li. And basically this, the, same, uh, the same thing in Skin Trade with his fight scene with Tony Jaw is, you know, the other guys are doing the martial arts. You know, he's just laying into them and just throwing haymakers. And it looks good. You're not just seeing the usual, you know, two guys who know martial arts. You know, you're, you're seeing basically martial arts against brute strength. Um, and I think it works in a lot of those movies. But, yeah, it, it is really cool to see him unleash some of these pretty awesome kicks uh, throughout I Come in Peace. Yeah, no. So um, one thing I wanted to, to go back to before I forget, <clears throat> especially with these opening scenes, you know, the film starts off, I mean, it, and it gets going. I mean, it is moving at such a great pace. And so we talked about these opening scenes and how it is set during Christmas. Were you like me at all and was a little, you know, this is one of those things that even to this day bothers me a bit is it starts off, you have it set during Christmas, which is, which is you know, a, a great time to set an action movie as evidenced by many of the other action movies that have come out. But the whole Christmas angle gets dropped after the first 10 minutes. And I almost wonder how necessary was it? Well, there is now there is the scene, you know, a little further into the film with the the bail bondsman who's watching It's a Wonderful Life, and he's kind of celebrating Christmas on his own. So that's kind of the one one instance where we do see it show up a little bit later. But yeah, I, I mean, it is kind of dropped um, a little bit later on in the movie. It doesn't really bother me too much. Um, I think there's enough of it there to where you kind of say, oh, okay, it is set during that Christmas time period. And it kind of fits in with a lot of the other great action movies that that have the the Christmas motif, you know, Die Hard, Leave the Weapon, um, you know, and so on and so forth. So yeah, it doesn't it doesn't really bug me that it's it's not a bigger part of the the later half of the film. No, okay, okay. So okay, yeah. So like we established, Kane is undercover. His partner is killed. Um, the head of the White Boys. I wanted to talk about this actor real quick. The head of the white boys, so, you know, like we established, the white boys are this yuppie, upscale, you know, these drug runners who even have their own building, for crying out loud. I mean, these guys, you know, arguably run Houston. Um, yes. And they are run They are run by, the character's name is Victor Manning, but the actor's name is Sherman Howard. Now, a lot of genre fans probably recognize him most from Day of the Dead. He is the... He is the zombie who is on the on the cover of George Romero's Day of the Dead. I guess nowadays he's doing a ton of voiceover work for video games. But I don't know about you. To me, he's always going to be Lex Luthor. 
Well, see, now, I, I have to disagree with you there because I know what you mean, Lex Luthor from Superboy. <laughs> but, okay, aside from I come in peace, he will always be the man who ended up with the junior mint inside of him on sign. Oh, shit, you're right. He, he was. <laughs> That's... And Jerry, and then George wants to invest in his artwork because he falls ill. He was the painter. He's going to pass on. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And uh, so to me, that's I come in peace, and and that role are sort of the two that 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 I always think of with this guy. But he's yeah, he's always been one of those very very good character actors. Whenever I see him, he's also um, a big part of the uh, the finale, the the two part finale of uh, Miami Vice. If you watch the last two episodes of Miami Vice, he has a, a major role as kind of a, a, a somewhat crooked government agent in there. Um, another uh, you know, another role that he has, that's uh, he's actually one of the henchmen in Lethal Weapon 2 um, with, the, uh, with, the, with the South Africans. Um, and one more that, that comes to mind is he's uh, Denzel's uh, rival lawyer in Ricochet. Uh, at, in the beginning courtroom scene, um, he's he's basically the, on the opposite side of Denzel, and then later on, um, he's he's on the actual uh, prosecution side with Denzel. So he's got a kind of a, a, a decent role in that one too. But basically, I come in peace and Junior Mint uh, Man are are the two roles that that come to mind for the actor. Well, and see, I I love you know I've always been a, a comic fan ever since I was a little kid. So I remember Saturday afternoons. Um, in syndication, watching the Superboy television series, and he, he was a great Lex Luthor. I mean, he was he was you know he, he was fantastic as Lex Luthor. Uh, definitely better than the other actor who played Lex Luthor a few years later in the Lois and Clark TV series, whose name is escaping me. But I think it was, um, uh, John John was Shea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think when it comes to the Superboy show, maybe that is is where our our few years of age difference comes to mind because. Maybe you were kind of at that age where that show came on and, and it was pretty impressive. But I think by the time that show was on, I don't know, maybe I was in my uh, 11 or 12 or so, and I just kind of looked at that show as bunk. I mean, I just was like, uh, this is this is not doing it for me. This is oh, it doesn't uh, hold up. Oh, dude, <laughs> don't 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 yeah, don't don't get me no, wrong. But I mean, it does even, not hold even up. At, but even <laughs> at the time, I was kind of like, oh boy. Though wasn't it? <laughs> See now where we're getting. Man, this is now coming to me just now from that show. Wasn't it Michael J. Pollard who played Mister Mix, whatever that Mixic Pitalik, Mister Mixic Pitalik? Yes, yes, That's he was. Him. <laughs> My God, was it the same casting agent for Superboy? Uh, did uh, I come in peace? Because I mean, they got everybody from that show. Yeah, no, no, yeah, possibly so. But yeah, I, I'm remembering that now as well. So, <laughs> but uh, so okay. These opening scenes in I Come in Peace, um, his partner dies, and man, they're hitting upon yet another, uh, yet another action movie cliche, another action movie trope, especially in the 90s. We get the angry police chief. So not only, <laughs> not only does Lundgren's partner die, um, but uh, he has an angry police chief who is just, you know, screaming him. Yeah, the character's name is Malone, uh, Chief oh, Malone. Yeah. And he, I, I, I love these scenes because, you know, we, we know that, okay, he isn't putting up with, <laughs> he isn't putting up with Kane's shit, but at the same time, he does give Kane a leash, <laughs> you know what I mean? And oh, he yeah. says, 
he says a couple lines that I thought were were hilarious. He screams at Lundgren eight days. You know, yes. eight fucking days is what he says, which always always left me wondering because later on Betsy Brantley, um, that that this is uh, this is Lundgren's you know love interest in the film, she gets angry at Dolph as well because he has gone for eight days. Were you like me and wondering where did Kane go for eight well, days? Yeah, I mean, what was Ray Turner also missing for eight days? I, that's something I wonder about. But the, what's funny about that line? Uh, with the the Malone character is he says now a week I could understand but eight days well I mean a week is seven days so it's like seven days that he could understand but it's the eighth day where he kind of loses it now, that never quite added up to me but yeah he, he's a good you know uh, authoritative figure you know you have to have one of those in these movies and uh, and you know the actor playing him is uh, is damn good at, at, at giving Jack Kane all kinds of shit no, he he does he does a wonderful job um, with that. But yeah, he he goes off about the whole eight days. And the other line that he uses, I love, is we see Betsy Brantley. You know, she's there um, as the as the city coroner. You know, she's at the crime scene, and we haven't talked about how uh, how this crime scene even you know really got started. <laughs> what the yes. uh, excuse me the end of result of it is. But I love how he's talking. He's screaming at Lundgren, saying eight days. Then he looks over at Betsy Brantley. Then he looks back at Dolph, and he says. And if I were you, I'd patch up your personal life as well. I don't know about you, but I've never been in a profession where my boss is giving me <laughs> is giving me advice and input on my personal life, you know. But I, I thought that was an interesting little uh, little line of dialogue. Yeah, no, that that's a good bit. And uh, you know what I I really like Betsy Brantley in this movie, and they kind of allude to it on the behind the scenes feature about how you know her hairstyle. It's not traditional kind of Hollywood leading lady type of a hairstyle but I mean she looks like she is a city coroner she I mean she's beautiful but she has that she carries herself in a way where yes I went to medical school I am the the coroner for the city of Houston and you you believe it and and I think she does a really great job in this role well, and regarding the whole eight-day absence, okay, we're never we're never told. We never even get a hint as to where Kane, you know, was for those eight days. One theory that I always had is that maybe, okay, obviously they're kind of pulling from you know the the bad boy cop trope that was you know populating cineplexes around around this time. So you know they could say that he is a functioning alcoholic of some kind. Maybe he was gone for eight days on a bender. However, when we see his apartment, when we see his pad where he resides later on in the film um he he's not an alcoholic really at all he's drinking a glass of wine and that that's his drink of choice so i always thought that was another interesting character trait they gave him yeah i mean well he was probably you know working a second job so he could afford to pay for that place yeah <laughs> possibly <laughs> so yeah well, I, I don't know what as but uh but, but yeah i mean there's i mean like we've mentioned on a, on a cop salary that place is a pretty extreme um, so yeah, that maybe that would explain the eight-day absence. Is you know he was uh, you know moonlighting, uh, doing security for the Houston Rockets. Possibly, possibly. And you know we haven't discussed you know so obviously his partner dies, but there's some other deaths in this scene. Uh, we get the we, we we already seen the arrival of uh, Mateus Hughes's character Talik, but he comes in to steal the drugs from this crime. Or, no, it's a crime scene later on, but he comes in from this drug deal to steal uh, to steal the drugs and he kills members of the white boys with the blade or the cd 
I always thought this was an interesting, an extremely unique way to dispatch of all these dudes. And what's interesting is everybody, you know, when Predator 2 came out, everybody loved, you know, all the new weaponry that they gave, that they gave the new Predator. But I couldn't help but wonder if Predator stole, because doesn't the Predator alien also shoot out a spinning CD disc to, to slice people up? Yeah, it does, and that that's ultimately how uh, Gary Busey meets his demise in Predator 2. Yeah. Um, but I don't, I don't think it's a case of, of theft because, I mean, I think Predator 2 came out, you know, maybe like November of that year. So, I mean, not, there really is not much of an over, of, a, of a, a time difference from when these movies came out, but it's certainly done way better in I Come in Peace. I mean, those shots of the, uh, basically you call it a disc cam, I don't know how you want to say it, but those shots of the disc moving through the air, I mean, it's awesome. I mean, they talk on the, the behind-the-scenes feature about how low-tech it was and, and you know, how it wouldn't be done today. I mean, to me, that's how it should be done today. It looks great. Oh, I know. This film is just stocked full with practical effects, and that is unfortunately yes. one of the things that is just lost from films nowadays. Is and you know, and it's always such a treat when you see a film made, especially a horror or science fiction film that uses practical effects, because it it just not only, in my opinion, not only does it look better, but it you can tell that they are really trying and putting effort into this. But yeah, these camera that the camera sequences that they use, whereas it is. Uh, following the CD around as it's slashing all these white boys, all their throats, is just, I mean, it really is wicked. And what a great way for you to, again, like you talked about earlier, they're going to introduce the character of Talek and let you know that he is a force not to be threatened with, not to be screwed with, and they show you a little bit at a time. And so, yeah, we get to see, you know, his one of his weapons, one of his tools is this CD were you like me, and did you have to? Did you think it was a little interesting? Okay, this this CD flies around. It's almost like it, it's a magnet. To they even established that later on that it is a magnet. But yeah, it it is attracted to the throats of its victims. But however, when it goes after Lundgren and Ben Ben later on in the movie, they're able to avoid it. And Ben Ben it slices his arm. Why didn't it go for his neck? <laughs> That's well, because you know he's the second lead in the film, and, and you need him to for the until the very end, and you know that's that's just the way it goes in in action movie world. Uh, the higher the higher you're you're on the marquee, the the better chance you're gonna live through the stuff that kills everyone else. True. Well, and what a great segue. But Lundgren is partner. We get actually two partners. So this is gonna be one of the things that <clears throat> I'm gonna be coming back to this, but. One of the problems with the film, and it's a small problem, as much as much fun as we are having discussing this, one of the things that I feel hurts the film, especially on viewing nowadays as I watch it again, is I feel this film is going for too much. It almost feels like they have that there are essentially three to four different story threads that are going on at once, almost three or four different movies, and they're all kind of jockeying for for space in the film. I don't know if they all are really needed. So yeah, we're, we're partnered. Kane's character is partnered with Brian Ben Ben. Uh, he plays uh, Agent Smith uh, with the FBI, and so you know it's hitting upon the whole buddy cop trope. I wonder if this character in this subplot is really even necessary because we also get the arrival of the good alien cop, um, portrayed by uh, he's not an actor, but Jay Billis. Um, who plays the who plays the good character? The, excuse me, the good alien cop, 
Azek. And so I don't know if you're like me, but I feel they could have they could have cut some of the fat off this film, if you will. And I'm going to say it, as funny as Ben Ben is in many of these scenes, I wonder if his character is even necessary and even needed. Oh, well, now we're 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 just going to be in direct disagreement because you got. I mean, Ben Ben is like the secret weapon of this film. I mean, you've got to have him in here. Him and Lundgren, I mean, they're so good together. Their dialogue, their exchanges, I mean, that's maybe my... Even more than the action, which I love, their, their dialogue together is what makes the film. I love it. I mean, this is probably, you know, Lundgren's best, you know, partner in a film. All apologies to the late Brandon Lee. I mean, I love Showdown Little Tokyo, but if you're asking me, you know, best partner... Uh, in a Lundgren film, it's hands down. It's it's Brian Benden. I mean, he is he's so funny in this. He plays it perfectly. He he knows how to hit the the weasel notes when he's more of the Weasley FBI guys, and he also knows how to how to hit the uh, the more heroic notes when he basically is all in on on with with Lundgren in the the, the third act of the film. So no, you, I mean, if you want to lose Jay Bylas, okay, I I can live with that. Maybe if you had to cut something, you could cut that character out. But no, Ben Ben, there's not enough of him in the movie. So, yeah, I mean, they could have gone, what they could have done is they could have had Lundgren team up with the alien cop character. And so the yeah. two of them, and so then it becomes a, <laughs> then it becomes no. kind of like a red heat type angle. Um, but yeah, see, to me, then, then you kind of have, you know, you're getting a little closer to what they did in The Hidden. Where you know Kyle right. McLaughlin was the alien and Michael Nouri was the cop, um, I, yeah, I, I would not have gone for that. I, you, that's you got to have Lundgren and Ben Ben together as they are. It's perfect. I mean, that is an awesome combination. Maybe you know if I was going to do a list of the you know top you know cop partner movies. I mean, th those two are right at the top. I think they are so good together in this movie. But see, here's my problem with that, though, is that it establishes, okay, you essentially have two villains. You have Talek the alien, okay, who's going after who's going after people for their brain endorphins. And then you have the white boys. And the white boys, I mean, they could have gone with just any any drug dealer gang, okay, if, if you will, okay. But they established this yuppie empire, okay, that is running Houston, um, and unfortunately, that that angle, that subplot, just gets dropped in the film. I mean, granted, they do come back later on, and they are, you know, blown up by Talek later on. But I mean, that angle, like like I said, it just gets dropped. And so I wonder if they were, if it's a little too much. If maybe they could have tightened it up a little bit. And I mean, look, if, if they had gotten rid of the white boys angle, um, like I said, I love those characters. I love Victor Manning. Um, but, like, I don't know. In my opinion, I feel they're going for too much. See, I think the, the, the use of the white boys, it's, it's just right. Uh, it's, they're, they're not the, the main villains. We know it's, you know, Mateus Hughes, he's the, the, the lead villain. You've got a secondary villain with the white boys. I think they're used perfectly. Uh, funny scenes in, in the boardroom. I love that boardroom scene. Um... You actually do have a third villain in the film with a uh, Switzer, the uh, the FBI guy. You know, with, with what See? eventually goes on with, with his character. But I think that works too because that's kind of the arc for Ben Ben's character. You know, now he's betrayed by his boss, who, who's about to kill him, 
and you know thankfully Jack Kane just decided to hang out and, and watch everything and you know saves his ass and uh, but to me it all works it all comes together you know the only character that I would say is perhaps extraneous and probably could have been cut out is the the Jay Bilas uh, good alien but other than that man I think I think it all comes together and it's all used perfectly and, and everything kind of complements each other so here is my idea okay upon watching this again here is my idea here's what I think they could have done to tighten things up a little bit and it doesn't excise Brian Ben Ben from the film but it excises his role as an FBI agent. So here is my idea. Go with me on this one. But I wondered if they could have tightened it up a little bit to where there's the old saying, you know, uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so I wonder, what I think might have been kind of cool, like I said, go with me on this one, is if Kane teams up with a member of the White Boys to track down, uh, to track down Talek, you know, the alien. And they could have, they didn't even, they, they wouldn't even have had to make this particular character a uh, uh, you know a full-on you know yuppie member it could have been the errand boy you know for for the white boys if you will and then Ben Ben could have served that particular role in my opinion if they had done something like that I wouldn't feel that there are so many threads out there that aren't getting tied up set you know giving me the satisfaction of, of those being tied up uh, no I, I just I don't buy into it I like I like the introduction of Ben Ben where he basically kind of tells Jack Kane off and tells him, hey, look, you know, I'm with the FBI. You're a Houston cop. I make twice as much as you, so you can cut all your macho bullshit right now. I, I love it. I love how he questions everything that Lundgren does, how he's by the book, and he's obsessed with the Switzer manual. I, I just don't think it would work as well if he was a member of the White Boys. I, I think you got to have him as, as the straight arrow uh, FBI guy who eventually kind of learns that to be a little more like Jack Kane, um, and, and and that's that's one of the best aspects of the film. Okay, okay, interesting. All right, well, like I said, it was an idea that I threw out there, but I didn't expect it to stick. But I do like Brian Binden in this role. He is fun. Um, he has such an arrogance about him that is fun. Um, at the time I saw this, I, I will admit, um, I recognized him immediately when I first saw this as a kid because he was on that show on HBO, Dream On. And Dream On was that show, uh, you know, nowadays, you know, and nowadays children, kids, it, it's kind of it's kind of scary to be perfectly honest, but they have access to pretty much everything at their fingertips thanks to the internet. But um, when you were a young kid growing up back in the 80s and the 90s, Dream On was that show that um, if you were up late, parents were in bed that was the show where you were guaranteed to see at least some nudity so uh so that that is my memory of brian ben ben was he headlined the show dream on that i believe ran for a solid three seasons yeah see i think i, I may have mentioned this on on one of our previous uh, podcasts but um i was a cable deprived child uh, grew up uh, with a with with no cable, so I mean, Dream On was like there there were all these shows that I would I would hear about. People would talk about were on HBO, uh, you know, Dream On and First in Ten, and I had no idea what the hell any of these shows were. And uh, you know, and, and eventually, I think a lot of these shows they would have them run syndicated. Like Tales from the Crypt was another one. You know, they would have them run syndicated on you know you know 
regular TV stations, but they'd be cut to shit, and, you know, either, so whatever nudity would have been on Dream On, you know, it was, was never seen on regular TV, so I, I knew of the show, but I, I really never watched it. No. I, I, I basically, I know that that's kind of his, probably his biggest credit um, was that show, and I think he had a couple other sitcoms that failed on networks, and I know he was on uh, Private Practice, which was a medical show I didn't see, so... I mean, primarily, it, it, for me, it, it's I Come in Peace, and, and that's that's how I know him, and that's how I love him. And, man, he is he is just... I, I can't say enough about how, how funny he is in this movie and how perfect he is with, with every single one of his lines. And, and I, I really... I can't say enough. I'm gushing. Yeah. <laughs> well, and he still has the comedic chops. I mean, that interview that he gives on the, on, on the, yes. on the documentary that's on the disc... Um, he still, I mean, he speaks about the film so fondly, and he is still hilarious. You know, the little anecdotes and the, the jokes that he gives, and, you know, just his overall personality and demeanor. I really wish it, you know, and obviously they didn't do it, and they obviously, you know, couldn't, but I would have loved to see Lundgren, Ben Ben, and Baxley in the same room and in the same, you know, in the same shot, because I imagine that had to be just such a fun conversation among the three of those guys. Yeah, I mean, to me, yeah, all from that interview, I mean, you know, we've seen Lundgren interview plenty of times, and he always comes off real well, and, you know, kind of has a sense of humor about some of the stuff he's done, and he doesn't doesn't take anything, you know, too seriously, and he's always a pretty good, pretty good interview, um, and, but yeah, certainly Baxley and Ben Ben, they come off as very cool guys, you know, Ben Ben's, you know, really seems to enjoy talking about the movie you know he doesn't have any of that oh you know this was a movie i did the low budget sci-fi film you know what are you gonna do you gotta start somewhere i mean he really seems to have had a great time making it and he seems to have a great time talking about it and yeah it's it's a very cool behind the scenes feature you know one of the things that 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 kind of comes to mind is we, we mentioned the scene with boner in the the strip club pool hall um i, I want to come back to that because even though you know, it is just a scene of gratuitous nudity and a chance to see a guy named Boner get a, get a knife put to his crotch. I like that scene because Lundgren's character, you know, Jack Kane, you know, he basically tells, you know, Ben Ben, look, I'm here. It helps me think. And we see him watching the people play pool and seeing how the pool balls are hitting each other. And, you know, that's what basically let keys him on the fact that the disc was a projectile and that's what leads him back to the crime scene where he eventually finds the disc i thought that was a cool touch it kind of shows how he works as a detective and how he puts it together and it actually makes sense in, in the grand scheme of things no it is yeah everything you said exactly right yeah we get to see we get to see him being a detective in these scenes and yeah i i i, I appreciated that as well um, going to the deaths, okay, we haven't really established this a heck of a lot. We talked about a little bit about how Talek is able to, you know, kill these victims. Like I said earlier, these scenes, you know, when I was younger, seeing this film for the first time, these scenes always creeped me out because they are, I'll say it, they are pretty disturbing, especially yes. when you see it as a little as a little kid. And just the the ingenuity and the, um, the uniqueness that they put into the uh, establishing this character and the way in which he's going to go about in accomplishing his mission. So all these little character traits, okay, so he has the CD disc that he that he spits out, but these, these deaths that he does, 
Um, and like you said, they, they show it in just a little bit at a time, okay? So the first time we see it, we see him, you know, he spits the cord out out of his wrist, and that is used to poison uh, poison the victim and just, you know, overload him with a ton of heroin. And then the blade comes out of the other side of the uh, other side of the apparatus on his wrist, which he's able to stick in the head and um, suck the fluids out. The first time we see it, the, the scene cuts away. The next couple times they linger on it a little bit more, so you're able to see what Talc is doing and what he is going for. Um, you know, like, <laughs> it, it's bizarre. <laughs> it, it is. Oh, you yeah. know, and when I was younger, it, you know, it, it creeped the hell out of me. You watch it now, and just from a storytelling aspect, from a storytelling angle, um, I, it, it works. And um, it, uh, it, they're, not, they're not fun scenes to watch by any means. Um, they could have definitely gone, you know, much more disturbing, much worse. But, you know, it works. Yeah, no, I, I agree. They're very disturbing, and that's one reason why we dislike Mateus Hughes so much. I mean, this is a, what he's doing is, is pretty goddamn scary, and uh, it it's, it's adds to the, the horror element of the film, and it, it's, it's what makes us really want uh, Jack Kane to track this guy down. Um, I will say that there's the, the scene where he, he finds the guy in the, the parking garage. He's some kind of a city worker who's on some kind of a small, not really a forklift, I don't know what you want to call it, but he's on some kind of a vehicle, some sort of parking garage. He's a city worker, and he's listening to like the most obnoxious rap song I, I think I've ever heard in my life about you know how ugly this girl is, and she's buck-toothed, and she... Uh, I, it's a, I don't know what that song is, but man, that is one of the worst rap songs I think I've ever heard in my life. So to to go from that horrendous song to suddenly now he's he's having you know basically these uh this he's basically being murdered by uh by Mateus Hughes. It, it's it's a very odd juxtaposition. Um, but yeah, like you said, I mean those are very creepy scenes, and I I think they're they're done really well. It's it's another highlight of the movie. Well, and I think yeah, you you said they're creepy, and I think one of the things the other the, the one of the other things that makes them so creepy is just the fact that the victims are so random. I don't know where Mateus Hughes is finding these victims. I don't know if he has some kind of uh, some kind of uh, radar, if you will, for who would be the perfect victims. But yeah, you we these scenes open up, and they're they're really ingenious if you think about it, because you can almost tell even if you've never seen the movie, you can almost tell who's going to be a victim because okay the first victim is the bail bondsman the second victim is this female mechanic then you have the, the guy driving the the forklift or whatever um i wondered you know why couldn't he just okay if he's stealing the drugs from the white boys why couldn't he just be um you know <laughs> why couldn't he just be you know, getting the getting the brain fluids or whatever it is that he's extracting from them from these guys but i guess upon watching it again we want to establish if he's just killing drug dealers, that doesn't make him as evil as a villain. We need to see him getting just, you know, innocent people who are caught in the crossfire, apparently. Yeah, I mean, that, that you know, the, again, those scenes where he's, you know, basically getting the uh, the drug from the humans, yeah, you, you got to have that be kind of the random, you know, horror movie victim type of scenes, and, and they're, they're creepy. I mean, it works so good. Um, you know, you have these people doing their jobs, going about their lives, and then you know suddenly they're getting their uh, their you know 
brain fluid sucked out of them. Um, it's 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 very it's it's it's, it's disturbing. It's uh, I yeah I mean I you said that it creeped you out when you were a kid and it should. I mean those those scenes are supposed to be that way. Um, but yeah, it would not have been. I mean if he had done that to the white boys, then we'd be like yeah great. You know go 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 ahead go go get as much brain fluid from these guys as possible. Um, but, uh, yeah, so it wouldn't have worked if he'd have done it that way. Um, the way they did it with the, the individual victims, uh, it, it's a nice touch for the film. No, it is a nice touch. Um, the other touch to the film that, <laughs> that I don't know if it holds up as well as it does. Again, like I said, this to me feels like it's, you know, two different movies put in one. But, yeah, we go from these, these horrible scenes of, of, of Talek you know, uh, extracting the brain fluids from these from, from these victims. And then we go back to Kane apologizing to Betsy Brantley. And her character's name is Diane Pallone. We haven't established that, uh, her character's name. But this is a hilarious scene that's been played on YouTube, you know, thousands of times. But it's a hilarious scene. He doesn't really apologize to Betsy Brantley. He shows up at her house, and she slaps him a few times. And, and he looks at her and he says, are you done? Uh, you know, again, <laughs> again, just you know him exerting his machismo and his badass, and she she falls for him right then and there. He never apologizes. Eight days he's gone. We don't know where in the hell he was for those eight days, but she just immediately falls for him. And and this is something else I thought was hilarious. She quits her job later on in the movie. Later on in the movie, he says, "Let's go on vacation. Let's just go." They have no idea where they're gonna go, but let's be gone for a week. And she quits her job for him. My God, Kane has got—he's uh, got some—he's well, got some mad skill. Well, I mean, I mean, she, yeah. But if if they both quit their job, she's probably got more potential to find a better job anyway. I mean, she's got a medical degree. I mean, it's not gonna be too hard to, you know, maybe go into private practice or, uh, you know, find some kind of gig. I mean, I, I feel more confident in her abilities to get gainful employment than I do Jack Kane. What's Jack Kane gonna do? I mean. What 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 kind of what does a you know a cop who doesn't even go by the book what does he do once he quits the force? Well, we don't know where he was for eight days. So are you really going to trust him planning an impromptu vacation? <laughs> I mean, well, you know, as it's also established, I mean, he can't even follow through with that. I mean, you know, she shows up <laughs> for vacation, and and he's like, no, no, I'm sorry, we gotta go, we gotta go uh, take on the, the the alien drug dealer. I'm very sorry, and uh, I don't know why he didn't say. You know, okay. Uh, you know, why don't why don't you go someplace safe? Maybe not with us because this alien is at, trying to kill us. I, I I didn't quite understand why. Maybe he didn't you know tell her to you know go somewhere else. And and I'm not really sure why she had to be in the final climax uh, climactic action sequence. But whatever. Hey, I'm not going to argue with it too much. Well, there's so many little little moments like that that just get dropped. That that really okay. I'm going to enjoy the film regardless, but there's those little elements like that that you just have to watch, and you're like, why couldn't they have... Okay, so his partner is never mentioned once again in the film. We never hear about Ray Turner or Ray who. His partner is not even mentioned once. And the other thing that I thought was, okay, that this isn't Lundgren's fault, and I, I don't even know if it's really the writing's fault. Maybe some editing could have been changed, but the alien is still on the loose. His police chief tells him okay, you know what, you need to take that vacation, you're on vacation, and Lundgren is totally fine with it. He is, let's go on vacation. There's still an alien out there. His partner has been dead. Manning, talk about subplots that just get dropped as well. 
Manning is, you know, away in Acapulco or Rio or wherever, you know, living it up. And Lundgren is like, you know what? Alien on the run, sucking brain endorphins out of people. The the killer of my partner is, you know, he's living it up as well. But you know what? Let's go on vacation. I mean... Well, you know, that doesn't bother me because it, it's, it's kind of basically his character saying, you know what? I've had it. I've done what I can. I, my, my partner's been killed. I'm doing whatever I can to try and track this gigantic alien drug dealer down. I've gotten my ass kicked by this guy. Uh, you know, why, why am I doing this? Why am I trying to be the sole savior for the city of Houston and trying to prevent it from this, this, uh, this alien attack? You know, let, let these guys take care of it. I'm out. I'm done. I really don't have a problem with it. It's fine with me. You know, eventually he does, you know, things do reverse, and he, he writes the course, and he gets on back with his mission to 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 make sure that there never again will be an alien drug dealer in Houston. And so I, I, I didn't have a problem with that. I, I can see where it's like, hey, you know what? Enough of this crap. Let's get the hell out of here. Let these people figure it out. Let's go on vacation. It didn't really bother me too much. Now, what about Victor Manning, though, getting away? Because we see, really, the character of Victor Manning, we see him only once in the film at the very beginning. He mails Kane a photograph, you know, to taunt Kane, to piss him off. But then we're, he's never mentioned in the well, film again. Right, but that's but that's the whole setup at the end of the movie when they're talking about where should we go. You know, he says, oh, I think Rio sounds nice. So, I mean, that basically is telling you that he's going to go after Manning and Rio. Okay, yeah, but again, there's all these... I I took it as, look, hey, we're going to go on vacation, but, you know, uh, for a a little bit of this vacation, I'm going to go after Victor Manning. That's how I took the ending to be. Okay, and and I I see where that's going as well, but, uh, man, this is is two different movies (laughs) in one, and I wish they had trimmed it up a bit. Yeah, I mean, most of the white boys end up, I mean, not, a lot of them end up getting killed, um, you know, towards the end of the movie. Um, so, I, I, to me, it's not about him taking down the entire you know, white boy operation. We see a lot of them get killed. Yeah, Victor Manning's still out there, but again, I think that the, the last line of the uh, lines of the movie kind of sets up that he's, he still is aware of where Victor Manning is and that he's still on his hit list. So I, I think he just kind of leaves leaves it up to your imagination of, uh, oh, okay, yeah, that's where he's headed. He's going to go after that guy. So I, I think they, they, they pretty much wrap it up for pretty well. Well, and speaking of the white boys, um, the subplot goes back to the white boys, and the white boys strong-arm Kane in making a drop. Okay, so, yeah, he they, they, they pretty much um, take hostage Agent Smith and, you know, like I said, strong-arm Kane into making this next drop. And the drop who he has to has to drop the uh, drop the uh, uh, the drugs off to is played by Al Leong of all people, character actor Al Leong, which you know he doesn't get to do any martial arts, any fighting. I always thought that was a huge missed opportunity. You're going to cast someone like Al Leong for this role for him to you know quickly take the drugs, run away, and then he's killed immediately by Talik. Well, see, I, I like it because it's a rare speaking role for Al Leong. True. We didn't, you know, that we we got it in in Lethal Weapon. He's speaking role there, 
and and this movie. I mean, those are two of the, two of the only ones that that come to mind where he's you know, you hear his voice, and he 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 does not sound like you would expect Al Leong to sound, and that's another reason I love it. Is I mean, he just he sounds like you know like he's basically been lived in in Houston his whole life, um, and and I, I I like the aspect that he doesn't have some cheesy martial arts scene i mean that would be great i mean you know you can watch his fight scene with uh, brandon lee in rapid fire and he i mean that's that's an all-time classic fight scene so you know he can do it but i don't think it was really needed in this film i i, I think his his part is, is pretty funny um you know tell the white boys to kiss my ass i mean that's a great that's great dialogue that's crackling it's crackling dialogue and yeah so we we get talik comes back again to steal more of what he is after um, and then we also get, you know, so we get this huge chase between Talek and Azek where they are, you know, chasing each other through a garage. Again, lots of practical effects where um, the, these cars are blowing up. Um, unfortunately, Talek gets the upper hand on Azek. Boy, it's difficult saying these names. <laughs> I, I was real. I, I don't even bother. I'm not even bothering. Well, and, I'm going with I'm going with Mateus Hughes and J, and Jay Bylas. That's who they are. Well, and I'm not even going with the with the character names. And their names are never even spoken in the film. This is all IMDb. So yeah. But Azek, he yeah, no, I, he's unfortunately wounded, and he is in the back seat of Kane's car. And he blows himself up. I mean, we're we're kind of you know going way forward here um, with the film, but yeah, he blows himself up in the back of the car. I, I always thought this was interesting. I thought I'd, I thought I'd ask your opinion on this. So, Azek here, um, he, well, he says something that I thought was was excellent. I didn't catch it until you know repeated viewings, but he says something because you know anytime there's one of these alien invasion movies of some kind. And the, the good guys, the good guys win, they, they stop the alien invasion, and everyone celebrates. But there's always the lingering question, at least with me, I'm thinking, okay, well, they stopped one invasion, who's to say there's not going to be another invasion? You know what I mean? So why are we celebrating? Um, you know, Jay Bylas brings up a really, it's, it's a quick line, but he says, you have to stop him because if he succeeds, more will follow. And so to me... That just obviously the film never had a sequel, but with that one line, it doesn't need a sequel. Um, you know what I mean? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think I'm I'm gonna go side with Mateus Hughes on this one and say that the movie very much does need a sequel. Um, I I, uh, I I see what you mean about that line, um, but hey, who I mean, who's to say that you know word gets back to the the guys on the home planet that okay, well, hey, this guy blew it, but hey. There, there, there were plenty of pickings for, for our drug here. Let's see. To me, a, a sequel would have been like how Aliens is to Alien. You know, Alien. You had the one, and you had the one guy, Alien, going around doing his thing. You know, part two, you've got multiples coming in, and you've got a you know maybe it's like twelve of these guys who come in. Um, that's that's how I would have would have would have staged a sequel. So I don't know that dialogue. It it didn't really. Uh, it didn't really sway me one way or the other, but I, I think it's interesting that you said how he blows himself up. I never really got the impression that he did that to himself. I just got the impression that that's what happens when they die is they just blow up because I don't think he would have, he would have done that on his own, especially with Lundgren and Ben Ben right in the car with them. I think that was just an involuntary explosion caused by his death. I think that's just how, what happens to them when they die. Well, to be honest, the even more burning question that I have had regarding this character in this scene is how is it that he is fluent in English 
and all all the bad alien, all Mateus Hughes can say are those four words, I come in peace. How do they explain that? Well, I mean, some some of the aliens are more fluent in English than others, you know. I mean I I certainly know I know way more Spanish than I know Chinese, so I, I think it would be it would probably be uh, make sense that some of these guys know more English than, than, than others. And why does he say, I come in peace, first of all? Because he's not coming in peace. He's not, I mean, peace is the exact opposite for why he is, right. for why he is there. Well, so why are those well, the four think, lines? Well, I would say that maybe he was, in, those are the instructions on his home planet. You know, it's basically, okay, these are four words that you can say that will give some, some, relative comfort to whoever you come upon thus giving you an easy advantage to suck out their brain fluid that's how i would look at it it's like hey say this there'll be a little bit of relief you'll disarm them a little bit and then go about your business okay possibly possibly yeah but um okay so he unfortunately jay bilas's character and we haven't really established this but yeah jay bilas was not an actor he is a basketball player they needed a they needed a an imposing presence to play the, the good alien cop. So yeah, they they approached this uh, player for Duke, is uh, yeah. was, was his was his experience, and he was game. He shaved the front of his head, put in contacts, and he was pretty much let's 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 play. And he came on set, and he he you know I know that you said that uh, this character you would be okay if this character was excised from the film. Um, if they did excise it, I guess I'd probably be okay with that as well. But he he does lend a sense of uh, urgency and immediacy to uh, to Mateus Hughes and his and his his plans. Yeah, well, I mean, Jay Bilas. I mean, he's you know now pretty much the top you know ESPN uh, college basketball commentator. So I mean, he's he's you know one of the one of the the bigger bigger minds of the game of uh, college basketball going right now. Um, yeah, I, I'm not saying that I would prefer him to be cut out of the film, but if we're looking at characters that probably could have been snipped and you still would have had a great movie, I would say he's probably kind of at at the at the top of that list. But I think he does a fine job. I mean, it's 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 not a very uh, uh, a real heavy uh, dialogue driven character. And he, he, he does basically what's asked of him, and he, I think he did it pretty well, uh, especially for a guy that really has no experience uh, in these sort of movies and really didn't do anything uh, in this sort of genre afterwards. Yeah, no. He's really only in three scenes, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, he's in the arrival scene, he's in a chase scene, and then he's in the final scene where he does get shot and he is in the back seat and he, he, he meets his demise. Yes, yes, and uh, yeah. Again, he does just fine. Um, I don't have I don't have a problem with him in the movie. But again, if I was going to cut a character, I mean that that would probably be the one to cut. Okay, so you seem to be okay, Chris. You're pretty forgiving with a lot of the a lot of the uh, elements in this film. I want to ask you this next one, okay? So, so Brian Benben and Lundgren are able to, you know, they, they need they need the evidence to bring to Malone and bring to Switzer that there is an alien invasion, and they they are able to take the gun. Um, the fun thing about the gun that I thought was that I thought was hilarious was how Brian Benben's the only one who's allowed to use it. I don't know if you caught on to that or not, but he is the one who's insisting on using it, even when Lundgren is saying, "Hey, let, let me have the gun, let me see it." 
Ben Ben is oh, yeah. he's the one using it. I thought that was hilarious. But oh, yeah, no, I love that. That's that's a great uh, a great gag in the movie. No, so but okay, so here's my question for you. He takes the gun. Kane and Smith have a little bit of a uh, a little bit of a disagreement as to what to do with the gun. Um, and Smith pulls a piece on on Kane and and says, "I'm taking this to my boss, and I'm sorry. You know, I'm the good guy, and you seem to forget that somewhere along the way." He brings it to his superior, and his superior double crosses him. Kane shoots the uh, shoots his uh, the character's name is Switzer, I believe. Yeah. So yep, Kane yep. Kane saves Ben Ben. Shoots Switzer. Switzer falls into into the the pond that is in downtown Houston. Here's my question for you: How are Kane going to explain the killing of a head FBI agent? And did that bother you at all with how um, blasé they they were with uh, with this event? Uh, no. Again, I mean, <laughs> you get these kind of you get these shady government types in a lot of these movies, and you know, you they're 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 end up being more evil than than anyone else in the film. So no, I didn't really have a problem with that. I mean, I think if if you've got Ben Ben going to bat for what Lundgren did, uh, I don't think it would be a huge issue. Um, no, I, I like that moment. I think it's very cool. I like how uh, earlier on uh, Lundgren tells Ben Ben, "Look, he's going to give you that line about uh, you gotta, you know, if you want to make an omelet, you gotta break some Crack eggs." Crack a few eggs. Sure yep. enough. Sure enough, they get to that scene, and he does say that. I, I like that little moment. I think it's it's a very cool. It's a good way to kind of show that you know Ben Ben's character the light that okay, hey Jack Kane, that this is the way to go. This is how you got to be. Everything that I've believed in and everything I've kind of based my career on is 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 this guy Switzer. Well, he's full of shit, and he's gonna try and kill me. And uh, so I like that moment. That 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 really. That really sells the fact that, okay, I'm now with Kane. I'm all in with him. Let's go ahead and let's go kick some ass. Let's go ahead and let's go kick some ass. Exactly. And we get the return of the white boys. So this is one little plot thread that they tie up. It, it's a little quick, but yeah, the, the white boys do return because, you know, they assume that Kane stole their stole their uh their property money and the drugs uh, money yeah. and the drugs and and ran off with it and so yeah they come they corner him they're planning on killing him and it makes sense that they are they are blown up by Mateus Hughes um i i always love that because it, it's tying up that little plot thread um pretty quickly pretty efficiently and so yeah we get this massive massive car chase between at this point, I believe it is it is Kane, uh, Betsy Brantley's character, and Ben Ben all in the car, and they're being chased by uh, Mateus Hughes' character. Again, using practical effects, it's a great scene. Yeah, now, I, definitely, that's a great scene. I do want to go just rewind just a very little bit before the, the, the showdown with the white boys. Maybe, maybe my favorite scene in the movie... When they're back at, at Lundgren's awesome pad, and he's he's kind of fixing up his his arm after it was sliced a little bit, and he he needs a jacket. Oh yes. And uh, Lundgren Lundgren gra grabs the jacket, you know, gives it to Ben Ben. Ben Ben is you know pretty amazed that it fits, and he's very happy. Oh wow, I can't believe this fits. And, and Lundgren 
best line in the movie. Well, shit, it was mine when I was 12. Yeah. I mean, that is so awesome. I love that that moment. It may be my favorite line in the whole movie. Even ahead of you, And You Go in Pieces, Asshole, I love the jacket line. Well, that's right up there with his line in, uh, in Showdown in Little Tokyo that he says to... Uh, doesn't he say to Brandon Lee, it's fairly early in the film, he says, oh, you should have started earlier, your form was a little off. And he says, I started when I yes. was four. <laughs> so. yes. Yeah, that that's very good. But, uh, yeah, that is a good line. Um, but to me, that, that jacket exchange, oh, man, I, I that probably my biggest laugh in the whole movie is, is that is that moment. But, yes, yeah, so then it goes on to the, the encounter with the white boys and leads into the great car chase. Uh, classic Baxley explosions all over the place. Um, I'll tell you, one maybe my favorite bit from the car chase is when you have um, Mateus Hughes. You know he's driving in his cop car, and you get the other cop car that comes along the side. You know, basically telling him to pull over. Um, you know, you, you you can't be you know doing this with a cop car. Mateus Hughes fires the disc at him, you know, kills the cop, it hits him in the throat. Car veers off and it, you know, goes right into the into the uh, into the, the whatever the divider on that road, blows up classic Baxley explosion, and there's that cool smile that Mateus yeah. Hughes gives. It cuts to him and you see that I love it. It's this great little grin that he has because he was able to cause this great explosion. That's my favorite part of that chase scene. Yeah, no, and only only Mateus Hughes could pull that scene off, you know, because that little smile that he gives, it's not even a full-on smile, it's more of a smirk. You know, it's about yeah, a half it's smirk. Like a little, it's, a little, it's a little grin, but it's it's we haven't really seen that from him up until this point, and just the fact that, okay, he's really getting off on this, and, yeah. and I love that quality, and it, it's, it's a great little moment. Yeah, well, and this is, okay, this is a product of the early 1990s, and so, you know, like we've discussed, it is hitting upon so many of those cliches and so many of those tropes that uh, that were, you know, prevalent in one of those films, and what better, what better place for the climax of this film to take place is it some random factory? I, I always loved this about these about these films in the in the eighties and nineties about how the climax will take place at this factory. How they're able to get into this factory, I don't know. How it is that certain things are still running even after hours, I don't know. But it only makes sense that uh, that it ends at a random factory. In this case, it is a cement plant. It's hitting upon those tropes. It works. Um, I I thought th I think it's hilarious. Again, I'm going with it, but. Uh, I didn't know that, yeah, you can just walk into a factory, uh, a plant, whatever it may be, no problem, and just start blowing things up, you know, and walk yeah, away. Uh, apparently no no night watchman at this uh, at this factory, but, but yeah, I mean, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, Terminator 2 or Cobra or, uh, you know, all these all these movies, they always have the, the, the factory and God knows what goes on there during the day. They basically just exist for the climaxes of these uh, giant action movies. And, uh, and yeah, it's fine with me. I mean, you know, I'd, I'd rather they have the climax here than, you know, out in some field somewhere. So, you know, you got to have a place that, that, uh, that, 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 you know, can serve up some quality explosions and whatever they were doing in this factory, uh, a lot of it was awfully flammable. It, it was. And the final fight between Kane and Talek, Dolph and Mateus, however you want to refer to it, 
they are clearly going for a Predator versus Dutch angle. Um, I would say that I think the, the final fight between Predator and Dutch was a little more well done, but then again, they had more of a budget to work with, but you can tell that they're going for that same kind of angle. My only gripe with it, and it is it is minor, but I was left wanting more. I feel like the, the final battle between these two, these two forces, these two individuals, should have been a little longer, and unfortunately, it, it really is not. No, I, I can I can hear you. I can sort of agree with you there. Uh, a little bit more might have been nice. Uh, a little more of a hand hand to hand stuff uh, would have been pretty cool. Um, it gets a little, maybe a little too uh, Evil Deadish with uh, all the shots of Lundgren on the ground with the with the wire. Uh, yeah. You know, kind of moving them around. Uh, that's a little little bit on the silly side. It doesn't bother me too much. But, yeah, I mean, I probably would have would have preferred more hand-to-hand combat and stuff like that. But, to me, whatever whatever gripes I may have with the, the final fight scene, it's all nullified by, uh, by Lundgren's, you know, so many awesome lines. But his great line before he sticks the thing in, in Mateus's neck of, fuck you, spaceman. Yeah. I, to me, that... To me, uh, you give me that in the climax, and I don't. I don't really care what else you do. You've already won with me. Well, no, that that is a great line. I always loved uh, the kick that he does. The kick that he, you know, that he uses to impale and oh, yeah. to impale Mateus Hughes onto that pipe is, is badass. And just the wide angle shot that Baxley yes. uses to, you know, to where you get to fully see that long kick to to knock him knock him onto that pipe is really well done. And then I guess, uh, you know, of course we cannot. We can, we, what would a boot or review be of the film I Come in Peace without uh, without addressing and analyzing his final line and you go in peace as asshole? Such a great closing line. Yeah, maybe you know, maybe one right up there uh, as as one of the all time classics. Um, I, I would say maybe my 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 favorite you know send off to the uh, the main villain line. Probably the only one I can think that it would rival is a uh, Seagal at the end of Marked for Death, when he you know throws uh, Screwface, you know the well now is this the second Screwface throws him down the elevator shaft, cut to Seagal with uh, I hope he, I hope he wasn't triplets. Uh, that's maybe the only one that that might rival. But yeah, come on, I mean I come in peace, you go in pieces, asshole. What's really cool is that. That's kind of the one thing that I remember about the advertising for the film is, you know, they would show that line. They would show the, well, you go in pieces. You know, it'd be Dolph Lundgren, you go in pieces. But it wasn't until I actually saw the movie that, you know, they, I got to hear the, the, the asshole part, and I think that just makes it even better. No, yeah, you said so many things there. But, yeah, um, <clears throat> real quick, going back to... You know that that line in Marked for Death. I mean, you know, here is another film, Marked for Death. I believe was '92, if I'm not mistaken. No, that was actually that was '90. That was, was 90. that '90. That was right around the same period as this and uh, and Predator Two. Okay, all, all right around the same time. So yeah, I mean, I mean, we keep referencing a lot of these films, but yeah, I mean, just that that early '90s period um, yeah. for action movies was just such a such a such a glorious time that um, boy um, you, the, there's a few films nowadays that try to harken back to it but they haven't been as successful but yeah um, such such great lines and again we talked about all these things that made these films 
so great and so, you know um, such classic you know gems of the era but yeah the, the other thing is just that that that, that dialogue that, that witty banter and those those great closing lines that you would never hear anybody in the real world say but man does it <laughs> does it work yeah no I don't want people in these kind of movies talking like the real world I I live in the real world I, I know what people are saying in the real world and I want you know, I want action movie dialogue in, in the in these films and, and that's what I come in peace gives you and it, it goes over the top and, and that's what I want. I love it. It's it's I mean so many awesome lines and it, I mean I, I can't say enough about how it's not just the action that puts this movie um, at the top of for me of Lundgren's filmography. I mean really the dialogue is is genuinely funny and it's it's the kind of movie that I could put on and not even watch, just have in the background, and just the dialogue is so much fun that that I can I can appreciate it just for that alone. Yeah, no. Um, so as we're wrapping this up, I know it gets a a full on recommend from you, but I'm curious why why I mean, we bought like we've already <laughs> discussed ad nauseum, but if you could yes. please. Why does it give? Why does it get a big recommend from you? Again, not just not just as a Dolph Lundgren film, but as as an action movie in general. Why does it stand stand the test of time for you? Well, I mean, it just it fits in so well with this era of the sci-fi action film. It's something that we really don't get much of anymore. Are these kind of gritty but fun? You know, kind of not going to say low budget, but sort of mid budget uh, sci-fi action films, and I love those type of movies from that area. Era. I mean, I mentioned them earlier. You know, They Live and The Hidden, and and this is right there with them. And I, I love that type of that type of attitude, and we don't get enough of it. Um, and to me, that's that's why this movie is is not only one of my you know favorite Lundgren films. You know, it's it's pretty high just overall in terms of movies that I can watch at any time, and I, I never get tired of it. It's it's total fun from start to finish, and I'm glad that it's kind of gotten this newfound appreciation that it didn't get when it first came out, and and people have kind of rediscovered it, and it's one that I think is is near the top of a lot of of fans of, of Lundgren's movies because it just works. It's just from start to finish, just a hell of a ride, and so many elements coming together from the script to Baxley's direction to Lundgren to Ben Ben Mateus. Everything works perfectly, and, and you know that's why I love this movie so much. I'm right there with you. I, I would put it up there. I honestly think that this is one of Lundgren's best performances out of his entire career. And you know he's had a career of, of well over 80 different you know acting credits to his name. But for being you know one of his early films, I believe this was his fifth film, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, fifth, fifth or sixth film. Um, this is easily one of his best performances. You know, you get to see him play a regular guy. He exudes such charisma in this role that you instantly forget that he was once Drago, that he was He-Man. Um, this is a prime example, like I said earlier, of what made 90s action movies so glorious. I mean, this is pre-CGI. The practical effects were done by someone who should still be working more nowadays, in my opinion, because I, I, I hate to sound like an old codger when I say this, but they just don't make movies like this anymore. They really do not. 
and this is this is the 90s everything about the 90s that made it so great you have the machismo you have the cheesy one-liners you get the unnecessary nudity you get explosions ad nauseum and I think most importantly what makes this film hold up so well um, as not just being a great action movie but as being one of Dolph Lundgren's best films is the villain you know that there there is that old the old saying your movie is only as good as your villain and you know I would say his most memorable films, his best films, are the ones where you have a villain who is intimidating, who really does pose a true threat, and yeah. this this gives that. Yeah, well, what I would say in terms of, of how it differs from a lot of his films is that if you look at the movies before I Come in Peace, a lot of those are characters that, you know, mainly a guy like only Dolph could play. You know, they're you know big, imposing figures that you know maybe don't say a lot but the other you know, men of action you know red between red scorpion masters of the universe but the difference with i come in peace is that i think you could if it, if it hadn't been lundgren let's say jack kane had been played by you know patrick swayze or maybe kurt russell or someone like that i don't think the movie would change that much i mean i think it's no th that's that's kind of the big difference is that this is a character that probably you know could have been a, a you know a, a, a somewhat not so bulky actor um and, and it would have been pretty much the same movie and and i think it, it's reflected in his performance because he seems he seems more regular he's, i mean yeah he's a badass cop and he can kick everyone's butt and he's gonna save the day but he seems like a little bit more of a normal guy and he and he seems comfortable playing that role he's not having to be the the ultimate you know savior of the galaxy you know he's 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 a houston cop and he's you know he's a renegade cop but you know it's, it's the type of role that that could have been played by other actors but he does an excellent job with it exactly exactly you said it perfectly um before we close out you know i'm curious is there any any other elements of the film or anything like that that we have not touched upon i tried my very best to go through it um and we what's what's interesting is our conversation is actually longer than the film itself but is there anything else that we, we have not touched upon that um that you'd like to uh to uh, discuss okay i'm gonna uh, one thing that that we maybe missed and i do kind of want to get your opinion on it is if we're going going back earlier in the film when they discover the disc in the speaker and they you know they they basically decide they can't take the disc out of the speaker so you know they take the whole speaker but i find it hilarious that when Dolph is holding on to the speaker when he's like you just see him carrying it he's so he's carrying it so nonchalantly it has this this deadly disc inside of it that is, is, you know, if it falls out, it's going to kill God knows how many. But he's just kind of lugging the, the stereo around like it's really not that big of a deal. So I don't know if, if that's something that you noticed and if you had anything to say about that at all. You know, I did notice that, and my answer to that is quite simple. Um, it's Jack Kane. Yeah, there you go. And, that's <laughs> and that's what he does. I mean, Jack Kane, he does not need backup on, on a sting. Yeah. He doesn't really show any remorse over his partner getting killed. He's able to um, have, his, have his significant other slap him a few times, and he's fine with that. He's able to um, kick fellow cops out of the bathroom when they're in the middle of taking a leak, all because he is simply Jack Kane. And I think hey. what better... 
what better way to close up this episode than establishing it by that? <laughs> agreed. Agreed. We're, maybe we should uh, maybe we should put out bracelets for the for this episode. Uh, what would Kane do? Oh, you know, and, and we could wear that and, I'll take, and look I'll, to that for guidance. I'll take twenty. <laughs> so, well, hey, Chris. As always, I've had a wonderful time. Um, you're going to be coming back, obviously, because uh, you know we're, we're we were only we barely scratched the surface of Lundgren's filmography. But um, as always, I enjoy talking. I enjoy talking about these films with you immensely. And uh, as good as 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 enjoyable as uh, as I come in peace is, there are still quite a few others that are just as enjoyable, if not more. And then also a few others that are. Uh, um, going to be a treat to talk about um and i, I say oh, i say the term treat loosely <laughs> oh yeah no we're we're, I mean, we're 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 in the we're in the golden era right now and and there there's i mean that's one of the things i love about his his career is there's the ups and there's the downs and you know we haven't really hit any of the downs yet but uh, but they're coming and hey but that's look like i've always said i think this is the third time i'll say it. he's a survivor you know he's been around now over 30 years making these movies, and and hey, you know you take the good with the bad. Some of them don't quite work out the way that he wants them to. Some I'm sure he knows aren't going to work out, and hey, he need he's got to pay his bills just like everyone else. And uh, but but certainly not the case with I Come in Peace. I, I really want to thank you for uh, for letting me uh, co-host with you or, or sit in with you on this one because I am such a huge fan of this movie. Um, you know so. I definitely will, will say good night. I hope you have a, a great Christmas with uh, you and your family. And if if I have one one last message, I just want to I, I hope somewhere out there, Michael J. Pollard is having the time of his life and and knows that there are some people that that do appreciate his his work as Boner. Hey, thank you. What, what what a better way to close this up. I hope you have a Merry Christmas as well. And to everyone out there listening, please feel free to rate and review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you go to subscribe. And uh, we always appreciate the reviews. And I'll see you all next time on I Must Break, this podcast. <laughs>